um, we have a chance to hear from our brother in Christ. We just ask that your blessing be over him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Give me one second to grab my stand over here. So uh, you might not know that I've actually known Pastor Phil for a long time. In fact, he became the youth pastor at the church I grew up in right as I was graduating from high school. And he came in and I was all excited. And then I was like, oh, darn it. I'm not going to be in the youth group anymore. And he realized that I was disappointed, so he invited me to be a youth, his first youth intern. And so my first ministry position, official, official ministry position, was with them. And uh, I guess it worked out pretty well, because I've been in the ministry ever since. So. Um, but yeah. Oh. All right. Sorry. Now I'm on. Okay. Should I repeat everything I just said? No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I have a message that um, God laid my, on my heart uh, not too long ago uh, about a particular passage of Scripture, and I really hope that it resonates with you guys this morning. Even if it doesn't, uh, I think that one valuable thing that will come up this time is you'll have a newfound appreciation for Pastor Phil. Because <laughs> he is such a dynamic and awesome, awesome speaker. I love him. Um, Alright, so I want to start this morning with a question, which is, have you ever wished that God would make his existence and power more obvious than he does? Um, I myself know that I have felt this way often. Um, some of us seem to just have a gift of faith, and that means that we can just walk outside and look at the world around us and just go, wow, that's so beautiful. You know, I have no doubt that God is real and that he's powerful. But others of us sometimes struggle, and sometimes we think, wouldn't it be nice if God would just kind of show up in a really miraculous, dramatic, undeniable way and reveal himself? Or what if he just, wouldn't it be nice if he did that more often than he does? Uh, I was in campus ministry for about six years. I worked at the University of Connecticut, and there are a lot of people at the University of Connecticut who are skeptical about the existence of God. And I used to go to this group on campus called the Freethinkers Club, which was a group that mostly atheists and agnostics would go to. So atheists are people who just say, I don't think God exists. And agnostics are people who say, well, you can't really know one way or the other, so you just might as well not worry about it. And I would go there as the Christian campus minister, and I would try to engage in the conversations there and present a different perspective. And those conversations were hard, and it took a lot of time and, and, and investment in relationships in order to build something there where I could present my faith in a meaningful way. And sometimes I thought, how great would it be if I could just walk into the Freethinkers Club and just, I don't know, transfigure into a lion or something like that, and then transfigure back and be like, that was the power of Jesus right there. And then everyone would be like, oh, wow, well, you must really know what you're talking about. You know, I thought, how great would it be if I could do something like that. But in all my time going to this group, I have to admit, nothing like that ever happened. Now, I would say that there were things that happened that could be classified as a miracle. Not in the, 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 the uh, traditional sense of the word. In the traditional sense of the word, a miracle is a clear violation of the normal laws of nature. So like me turning into a lion. Okay, that would be a clear violation. 
But there were moments where I was having conversations, and it was so clear to me that the Holy Spirit was involved in what was taking place. And there were even some moments where people converted. People went from having no faith to having faith in Jesus. And by some definitions, that in itself is a miracle when somebody does that. But as far as those clear violations of the ordinary course of nature, genuine miracles in that respect, I don't remember anything like that ever happening. And I remember at times feeling a little frustrated uh, because people and freethinkers would say thing, things like, well, if there is a God, God could just write his name in the stars and we could look through a telescope and see his name in the stars and then, okay, then I would believe. But he hasn't done anything like that. So I don't believe. Well, in the scripture passage that we're looking at this morning, God doesn't write, hello, I'm here, in the stars, but he does reveal his existence and his power in a very clear and dramatic and miraculous way. And he does it to people who are not acknowledging him. So I have to admit that this story plays a little bit like wish fulfillment for me. This is the sort of thing that I, I, I've longed for. Um, minus the slaughtering that takes place at the end. But the, the rest of it plays like wishful moment. So, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to 1 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 17. 1 Kings chapter 18, I'm going to have it up here as well. Starting in verse 17. Alright, now just to set the stage here before I read this. This takes place during a time in Israel's history when Israel was really, really messed up. Uh, the king of Israel at the time was a man named King Ahab. And according to scripture, King Ahab did more evil than any of those before him. Because Ahab had married a, a foreign woman uh, named Jezebel. If you've ever heard that name used in a derogatory sense, this is where it started. Uh, Jezebel was a woman who worshipped foreign gods, and she persuaded her, her husband, King Ahab, to worship foreign, foreign gods, the Baals and the Asherahs. And, and because that was who was in charge, all of Israel was worshipping foreign gods. And within Israel, there was this one prophet of God, one faithful prophet of the true God named Elijah, the only one left. And in this passage that we're about to look at, this is a confrontation between Ahab and the one true prophet of God, Elijah. So, uh, here's what it says. When Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. So I want us to notice what's happening here. Elijah is basically proposing a showdown between himself, the one true prophet of, of God, and, if you add that up, 850 prophets of the false gods. 850. So one true prophet of the true God, 850 of the rest. All right, continuing on. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Now, I want us to notice that, that the people said nothing, because we're going to come back to that later. That's interesting. There's no response to that, right? Okay. 
Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves, and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. All right, now this is a little confusing for us in our modern times, what's actually going on here. But in those days, one of the ways that you showed honor and worship for a god was by sacrificing animals to that god. And what, what Elijah is setting up here is a, a test, basically, where they are both going to offer a sacrifice to their god. And each of them is going to call on their god to bring down fire from heaven and miraculously light the sacrifice on fire. So a confrontation where both sides are calling on their God to perform a miracle, a dramatic display of power, a violation of the normal laws of nature. And what I want us to notice here is that Elijah is letting the other people pick the two bulls. He's kind of like a magician doing a card trick when they say, I'll let you cut the deck, you know, I'll let you pick which card you want, okay, even though he's not actually doing a trick, he's doing a real miracle, but he just, he doesn't want them to say, oh, you, you picked a bull that you knew was spontaneously combustible. <laughs> you know, he's trying to make sure that when the, when the miracle happens, there's no denying this is a genuine miracle. All right, so continuing on. I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. In other words, all right, we're going to have a dramatic showdown. This sounds like a good plan. Let's do it. So continuing in verse 25. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response, no one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. So Elijah, being a gentleman, you know, lets the other side go first. And it says right here that they, they went from uh, morning until noon. Now, morning is probably daybreak, so that's about 6 a.m. So this is about six hours that Elijah is just patiently waiting while they call on the name of their God, trying to get their God to miraculously light this fire. And I have to imagine that Elijah is kind of having fun with them, right? That he's, he's that patient, he's waiting that long for them. He's giving them a good chance, right? He's like, hey, you guys can have as much time as you want here. Six hours... They're calling on the name of their God, and nothing's happening. In the next passage, you can really see that Elijah is having fun with them, because uh, he, uh, he starts taunting them a little bit. So um, it says, At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Now, this is a good example of what we might call ancient Near Eastern trash talking. Right? And it's actually more so than you might initially realize because that word for busy there, it's a Hebrew verb, and what it literally means is a withdrawal into a private place. And it's a withdrawal into a particular kind of private place that all of us would be familiar with. 
Basically, what Elijah is saying is, is uh, hey, maybe your God is, you know, maybe he's on the toilet. Maybe he's in the bathroom. I don't know. You know, just keep calling. So clearly, Elijah is egging them on. He's out in front here. And they take the bait. So they shout it louder, and they slash themselves with swords and spears, as, with, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. So, I don't know if you see that there, but they went all the way until the evening sacrifice, which means this is another six hours. So they've been at this for 12 hours now, and they're getting really, really excited and intense at this point. They are mutilating themselves, trying to conjole their God to actually miraculously light this fire. And the whole time, Elijah is just patiently waiting for his moment, right? Occasionally taunting, but patiently waiting. And now his moment arrives. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. Now, two seahs of seed is about 15 liters worth of water. So there's a trench here that can hold 15 liters of water. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Now, I don't know, if I was Elijah at this point, and I was confident that my God was going to be able to perform this miracle and send fire down from heaven, after 12 hours of waiting, I'd be like, okay, let's just do it. Let's just get it done, right? But no, Elijah wants to make this moment even more dramatic, even more exciting. So this is what he says. He says, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering in the wood. Four large jars. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. So this trench now that can hold 15 liters of water is completely full. So the sacrifice now is soaking, completely soaking. I mean, it's impressive enough to call down fire from heaven and have it light automatically after 12 hours of the other side not being able to do it. But, oh yeah, let's just make it soaking wet too. Okay. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so this people, these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice the wood, the stones, you hear that? The stones? <laughs> the fire burned up the stones? That's pretty crazy. And the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. 15 liters of water just licked it up. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. 
So as I said, minus the slaughtering at the end, uh, this plays out like wish fulfillment for me. So there's a clear showdown between the true God and the false gods. There's a, a clear display of the true God's power, and it so puts the false gods to shame that they're just utterly humiliated, and the prophet of God just seems so confident and cool and in charge, right? And he ends up totally vindicated. And I can't, I can't help but think, yeah, that's the way it should be. And then I can't help but think, why isn't it always like this? And so, part of me loves this story. And then, part of me reads it and gets a little frustrated. Because these kind of Mount Carmel moments seem so rare, don't they? I'm not saying they never happen. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for them to happen. I'm not saying that we shouldn't hope for them to happen. But, if we're honest, they don't happen a lot. And it's because of that that I'm just so thankful for where this story goes next. You might think that what I really wanted to talk about this morning was what I just read. But what I actually want to talk about is what happens right after this. Because it's what happens right after that, to me, shows just how deep and profound and real the Bible really is. All right, so skipping ahead a little bit to chapter 19, here's what it says. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. So, as dramatic as what happened on Mount Carmel was, do you see that it didn't, it didn't work on King Ahab or Queen Jezebel? Right? On the people that you would most hope that that incident would transform their minds and transform their hearts. Did it work? It didn't. It didn't work. Their response isn't, wow, the true God, Yahweh, he's, he's the true Lord, we should worship him. No, their true response is, we need to kill Elijah. You know, the same thing happened to Jesus. Jesus was undeniably performing miracles, and the religious leaders at the time who were opposed to him, they couldn't deny that he was healing people, that he was exercising demons out of people. They couldn't deny that, but they also didn't want to bow down and submit to Jesus. They didn't want to acknowledge that they were wrong about anything. They had a vested interest in rejecting the true God, in rejecting Jesus, and so they just said things like, oh, you know, Jesus is just doing these things through the power of Satan. Jesus is like, well, that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, why would Satan drive out Satan? It doesn't make any sense. You know, but they were so desperate to reject Jesus because they had a vested interest in rejecting him that the miraculous things didn't change their minds. And, of course, it didn't change their minds to the, to the point where they had him crucified, which, of course, only succeeded for a little while. But they did manage to, to achieve that. <laughs> Amen. Yes. <laughs> so the point I'm trying to make is that Miraculous, dramatic displays of God's power, as great as they can be, don't always change people's hearts. And they especially don't always have the effect of changing the hearts of the people that we most want to see their hearts change. Now, it is true that what happened at Mount Carmel did sway some people to think differently. Remember, some people, when they saw it, they felt prostrate and they cried and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. 
However, there's something we need to recognize. Remember, back when Elijah said to those people, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. How did they respond to that? They said nothing. And the point there is these people didn't really have a vested interest in whether the Lord was God or whether Baal was God. They didn't even know what they thought. They didn't have a dog in this fight. So I do think that miraculous events, dramatic displays of God's power can help to sway people who don't really know what they think, who don't have an opinion, don't have a vested interest one way or the other. But for the people who, for some reason, are rejecting God and have thought about that, miraculous Dramatic displays of God's power are limited in whether or not they can change a heart or change a mind. And we have to recognize that. And what we have to recognize is that God is the one who really knows when it's best to do some sort of miraculous display of his power. He knows when it's best and when it's going to be most effective. And so we have to trust him on that rather than getting frustrated when he doesn't act the way that we might want him to act. All right. Um, let's see here. Now, <clears throat> Elijah is actually very depressed by this. Elijah has been involved in this great miracle, and he's probably thinking, this should set everybody straight. This should make everybody realize that the Lord is God. But when it doesn't work out the way that he wanted to, when Ahab and Jezebel are still after him, uh, Elijah responds by saying, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Now, isn't that interesting that this is the attitude that Elijah has after participating in this incredible miracle, after looking like Mr. Awesome, you know, now he wants to die. And here's what I want, want us to notice here. Elijah has experienced this incredible display of God's power as well. But he doesn't seem especially empowered after that display. That sounds <laughs> counterintuitive, right? That's not what we would expect. But that's what's happened here. You know, you'd think he'd say, oh, Ahab and Jezebel are after me? Well, I'll call fire down on them too. But instead he just says, oh, I'm sick of this. I want to die. Take me away. So, to summarize, I've said this already, but two quick points if you're taking notes. What the story is telling us is that dramatic displays of God's power don't persuade everyone to change all the time. And two, dramatic displays of God's power don't necessarily embolden his people. Like, they can, but not always. And we need to respect the fact that God knows when these things are going to be most effective and when they're not. And trust him that he knows what he's doing. Now, here's, here's what I really love, okay? So, if you've heard nothing so far, pay really close attention to what comes next. So, we're told that Elijah finds a cave, and he spends the night in it. And this is what happens, starting in verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. 
Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. Oops. He pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. So what we see there, three overwhelming displays of God's power, right? A great and powerful wind, an earthquake, and, like on Mount Carmel, fire. But it isn't until that gentle whisper that Elijah so knows that he's in the presence of holiness that he can't help but take his cloak and put it over his face to hide himself. See, we have a natural tendency to think that the best way for God to get our attention or anyone else's attention, the best way for him to work is through the dramatic displays, you know, through the earthquake, through the wind, through the fire. And we get discouraged when we don't see as many of those miraculous signs as we would like. But what this story is telling us, and this is just so profound to me, is that the most powerful tool that God has for truly changing hearts, not just for showing off, but for truly changing hearts, is his gentle whisper. on power when we're sharing our faith. And when we're focused on power, we want to be like Mount, we want to be like Elijah on Mount Carmel. We want to blow people's socks off. We want to impress people. And so we get aggressive, we get defensive, we get pushy. But that's not the way that God wants to work. See, rather than trying to blow people's socks off, what we need to encourage people to do is to listen for that gentle whisper of God. You know, what we need to do is encourage people to slow down and to be still and, and to listen for God, for God and, and to be honest before God, to ask honest questions about their lives. Remember, when that gentle whisper comes to Elijah, what does it say? It says, what are you doing here, Elijah? In other words, why are you hiding in this cave? Why are you depressed? What are you afraid of? What's going on inside of you, Elijah? Why are you here? Remember, I said at the beginning of this message that uh, there were times in Freethinkers where I had conversations where I truly felt like the Holy Spirit was moving. Well, you know what it was? Is that in those conversations, somebody was answering the question, where are you? Somebody was actually getting real about what was going on in their hearts. They weren't just having an intellectual debate, but they were talking about what was actually going on inside. You know, where, they're on, where they honestly were, what their fears were, what was holding them back. I remember there was this one student that I would talk to almost every week, and we, usually we would talk on a very intellectual level. But one, one evening, he just started to get really honest, and he started to talk about how something happened 
years ago, in his past, when he was a kid, where he did something, and he was so convinced that what he did was, was very wrong and terrible, that he thought that if there was a God, there was just no doubt about it, he was going to hell. And he said that he lived with that guilt, and that guilt was so crushing, and that at some point he just decided it was easier to believe that God didn't exist. See, that's a moment where somebody's answering the question, where are you? That's a moment where somebody's getting honest and getting real. And I knew when it happened that it was a holy moment. So I really think that the best way for us to lead someone to faith is to help them to listen to that voice that says, what are you doing here? And help them to answer that honestly. So that's the first area of application sharing with others. But the second area of application for this passage has to do with how we relate to God in our own lives. And what I see here is just that it is so important that we make time to listen to that gentle whisper. You know, Elijah had just witnessed this incredible display of God's power. He had helped to facilitate a miracle. Um, he, as he says himself, had been very zealous for the Lord. And so I would put it as Elijah had been serving the Lord. He had been zealous for the Lord, and he had been involved in miracles for the Lord. But, but guess what? He wanted to die. He wanted to die. And it wasn't until he heard the gentle whisper of God that he was empowered to keep going. So if we don't listen for that whisper, we are going to become drained emotionally and spiritually, even if there's awesome, dramatic displays of God's power going on around us. And you know, I think it's so interesting that God speaks to us in a whisper. Because that implies two things about God. One, it suggests that God is already very near. Right? You can't hear anybody when they speak in a whisper unless they're already very close to you. So, God is near. He's already here. But the second thing it, it tells us is that God wants us to lean in. Okay, when somebody whispers, you usually have to pay extra attention to hear what they're saying. And you have to like lean in a little bit. And so what, what this is suggesting is that if God speaks to us in a whisper, we have to make it a point. We have to be active about taking the time to listen. Because it's not usually going to be like a bullhorn just shouting at us. We have to still ourselves, quiet down, and pay attention. And when we practice that, that practice of, of listening for the gentle whisper of God, and when we encourage other people to, to, to practice that, I believe that the effects of that are far more transformational and life-giving than being able to transfigure into a lion or having fire come down from heaven in front of us. There is so much power in the gentle whisper of God to transform our lives. So, in a moment, I'm going to pray to wrap up, um, but what I want us to do after I pray is just to spend a couple minutes, if somebody wants to come up and play on the worship team, play a little something, just spend a couple minutes um, listening for the gentle whisper of God and reflecting on that question, where are you? Where are you? And think about, okay... Where am I in my life right now, Lord? How did I get here? What am I afraid of? What's holding me back? 
and listen for what the Lord impresses on you. Now, the Lord's whisper might speak to you with audible words. Most of the time, that's not my experience. Most of the time, he speaks and gives us impressions of what he wants us to do. And as a word, a word of warning, not everything you hear in your head is always going to be the gentle whisper of God. You know, over time, we need to learn how to discern the difference between the whisper of God, the whisper of our culture, the whisper of our family, the whisper of the evil one. You know, we have to, we have to discern what the truth is. But the Holy Spirit lives in us, and we can improve and get more skill at distinguishing his voice from all the other voices around us. Especially the more familiar we become with scripture and the more that we uh, live in community with one another. So I'm going to pray in a moment, and then I just encourage you all to take that time to answer that question, think about that question, where am I, and be honest before the Lord. And trust as you go throughout the rest of this week that the most powerful tool God has to transform your life and the lives of other people is that gentle whisper. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are, you are powerful and that your power is often revealed in quiet ways. That's a mystery, Lord, but we thank you for it. We thank you that you are loving enough to reveal yourself in whispers. And God, I pray that you would help us to lean in. I pray that you would help us to be attentive to what you're saying. And I pray, God, that we would just experience the power that comes from listening from hearing uh, your voice. And God, we do pray that we might experience miracles. We do pray that we might see you moving in dramatic and powerful ways. Lord, we want to receive whatever it is that you might want to offer us, Lord. We want to be open to that. But we also want to recognize, Lord, that you are the one that has the wisdom to know when those things are most appropriate and when they're going to be the most powerful and effective. And our responsibility is to listen for your whisper. In Jesus' name,
ask that you 